you know, you spend time on the things you care about. And one of the things I care about is this kind of stuff. To the extent that I'm willing to be authentic to myself, I'll continue to do this. If I stop continuing to do this, that's probably an indication that it's time to sell the company. Welcome to the Authentically Successful Show. I'm Carol Schultz, founder and CEO of Vertical Elevation, a talent equity and leadership coaching and advisory firm. We partner with founders and CEOs to create talent-centric organizations, either where they don't currently exist or rebuild companies into talent-centric organizations. We are committed to supporting your vision and values by creating healthy, successful companies, leveraging the best talent, retention, development, and succession strategies. Listen at the end of the show for information about becoming my next guest on one of the most important podcasts for building thriving companies. Here we go. Joining me today is Hirsch Tapadia, co-founder and CEO of Allstacks, a value stream intelligence platform helping engineering teams predict and quantify team productivity. Hirsch, welcome. Thanks. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks. I'm glad to have you. Uh, can you please expand on what value stream intelligence is, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. So um, think about it from the perspective of, of the business as a whole, right? So you've got all these departments, all these people doing work. Mm-hmm. And what you're trying to do at your base base case is coordinate all this work together so that everyone is delivering on a common objective. Okay. But... As this work gets disjoint and documented and, and recorded in mm-hmm. all these different tools and all these different functions and silos, it just becomes challenging to keep track of it all. Right. And so what this concept that was created about five, ten years ago was value stream management. And value stream management was about coordination, ultimately. Bring all this data together, line it up so that everyone kind of understands where things things are going on. Mm-hmm. The problem with that concept was it required two fundamental bases. One was that everyone was working the same way. Mm-hmm. And the other one was that you would know what to do once you understand the landscape. Well, neither of those things are true. No two people in any organization work the same way, right. let alone in their tools. Mm-hmm. And just because you have a bunch of data, that doesn't mean you understand what to do with it. So what we did with Allstacks mm-hmm. was we iterated that concept to value stream intelligence, this mm-hmm. idea that you don't need to get everyone into this big change management exercise to get them on mm-hmm. the same mode of working. We just look at how everyone is working and we intelligently map all that together in the background using machine learning. And then based on your historical behaviors, we help understand what's going to happen in the future. So if A, B, and C happens, then D is likely to happen. And then when A, B, and C happen again, we say, hey, D is probably coming up. Do you want that to happen? Because if you don't, let's start doing something about it. And that's that's how the concept of value stream intelligence emerged. And what we did is we are focused on engineering and product delivery in that lens. If the code is developed in this way and review goes this way, you're probably going to be late. Do you want to be late? If you don't, uh, here are places you can look to stay on track. Mm-hmm. And here are processes you can improve so that they don't happen in the future. That's really interesting. Is, is this a market that other businesses are in or are you creating a new market? We, we are... 
creating and iterating a market, mm-hmm. I would say. So the concept of value stream management, that's something that's been around for a little while. Mm-hmm. The promise of value stream management has never really been realized. And so what we're doing is we're creating the next generation of this category. We're disrupting mm-hmm. this category. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple players along the along the way with us. Mm-hmm. We're all about the same age. We all do do different flavors of the work. Mm-hmm. We're the most holistic solution that's really focused on predictive capabilities, forecasting and outcome analysis, not just process improvement. Mm-hmm. So who do you sell to if, in companies? Here's your, here's your prospect. We usually sell to, yeah. yeah, we usually sell to a head of engineering mm-hmm. um, inside of a, a software organization inside mm-hmm. of a company. So it doesn't have to be a software company. Could be like a, a retailer, right? Like a Macy's has a big software organization right. and they have a head of engineering. So it doesn't have to be someone who sells software as a primary source of revenue. Mm-hmm. But like everyone says, software is everything, right? Software is in the world. Software is the way of the future. Mm-hmm. And any business that's worth their salt will say, mm-hmm. hey, if we don't invest in technology, make that the center of our, of our right. world, we're going to be left behind. Right. And so that's really made the market blossom. Mm-hmm. We see a lot of a lot of interest in fast growing tech companies, e-commerce, retail, mm. and financial services in particular. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, those are often forward forward looking industries that we see. Mm-hmm. Do you have a particular size of prospect market you're calling into? Yeah, you know, it's more of a, a size of the bottom end than the top end. But what we see is that, is there enough organizational complexity that people see pain? And so what that means is, think about, a, think about a software development team where the entire team could fit around one dining table. We call it the dining table problem, mm-hmm. right? If your whole organization fits around a table, you can always look up, look across the, the table and say, hey, what are you doing? Are you going to be on track? And they're not likely, you know, they're not going to lie to you, right? You're sitting across the table from each other. And so in that place, whether or not they have the problem, they don't have the pain. Mm-hmm. And so we look for the next level up. And so think about it as, is there any middle management? Do you have teams of teams? Um, do you have you know, p- different groups of people working on different things at one time? And we usually see that emerge around 20 to 30 developers mm-hmm. inside of an organization. Mm-hmm. And then from that point up, we can pretty much work with anyone. Interesting. So you co-founded your first company, uh, Certorex, uh, right out of graduate school. Um, you were there for about mm-hmm. six and a half years before uh, co-founding Ravioli Labs with Jeremy, your current partner. Mm-hmm. And then you and Jeremy started Allstacks in late 2017, about four yep. years ago. Tell me, and, and, and I want to point out that all stacks that you were, that you were, um, part of Techstars accelerator program with all stacks. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your journey through these other companies and, you know, how all stacks came to fruition and what it was about all stacks that had you accepted into an accelerator program. Yeah, absolutely. So, and it's funny if I, if I go back and look at all of my experiences, Everything mm-hmm. in a way kind of culminates at Allstacks, and so mm-hmm. I'll start even a little bit earlier okay. um, back in in college when I was at IBM. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing about my time at IBM was 
I worked in this group. I did a bunch of work. I did mm-hmm. some software development. I did some mm-hmm. QA, et cetera. And after a couple of years, I decided I didn't want to be there anymore. And I left. And why did I leave? I was reflecting on this mm-hmm. actually just last week. <laughs> I was pretty highly recruited mm-hmm. inside of IBM. Mm-hmm. They really wanted me to stay. They were like, we'll get you into any division you want. What do you want to do? And I said, well, I don't really want to be here. And the reason I didn't want to be here was I not because I didn't like the people. Sure. It wasn't yeah. that you know my coworkers weren't great uh-huh. or the work wasn't interesting. Uh-huh. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't know what impact it made to the yeah. company. There's this five, 6,000 person group that I was in. Yeah. And mm. no one's really been able to explain to me, even to this day, mm. what the point was. How did it affect the company? Mm-hmm. How did the work I was doing translate oh, to I the outcome? I would love to hear that. Yeah. That's fantastic. I just couldn't, I just couldn't see yeah, it. Yeah, right. My very next experience was the opposite. Mm-hmm. I was in a, I, I got to join a startup mm-hmm. and we were doing this really interesting um, defense related signal processing work for like submarines and aircraft carriers and mm-hmm. things like that. And it was where I first experienced hyper growth. And so what I saw was this physical and literal manifestation of growth where I interviewed, we were four people. Mm-hmm. I got the job, there were 12. Mm-hmm. By the end of the summer, there were 25. The next year, there were they were 50 or 75 people. Mm-hmm. The next year, there were hundreds. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, the footprint of the office was growing. It was in a little strip mall. It was one bay of the strip mall, two bays of the strip mall, four bays of the strip mall. Right. Then it was a four-story yeah. building, yeah. and then it was four four-story buildings, mm-hmm. like literally doubling every year. Wow. And... Just to be able to live through that experience, it Mm -hmm. it was tremendous. And one thing I saw was that everyone really understand what they were doing, why they were doing it, why did it matter? Mm -hmm. And there was this web of connectivity up and down the chain. And that was the point where I was hooked. I was like, I'm a startup guy from here on out. And so what I did was in university, as I was coming out, we had the option at, at NC State where I did my undergrad Mm-hmm. to do like a traditional senior project mm-hmm. or there was this entrepreneurship program where we could start a company. Right. And they gave us a little bit of money, about $10,000, and they said, go start a company. <laughs> and we got to recruit other students to be our employees. Awesome. And so we built this medical device called MedCount. And what it did was it diagnosed tuberculosis and it used hmm. computer vision. And I was like this automated microscope. And we got the money to build out the device. We had to write the business plan, you know, did all the normal, like university started things, competed in, mm-hmm. in business plan competitions mm-hmm. and all that. But we were really intent on making this a real thing. So I went to India and I set up clinical trials in a hospital in India. And we were like taking this to commercialization. Awesome. Well, funny thing happened and, and a really important startup lesson was it was 2009 market mm-hmm. crashed, mm-hmm. economy crashed. Um, and I was a 22-year-old electrical engineer <laughs> trying to build a medical device for Southeast Asian yeah. uh, nonprofits and NGOs, right? Not yeah. not a cash-rich right. environment at right. the time. But what I did have was the opportunity with one of our advisors essentially sell the company into a company that was spinning out of Johnson Johnson. Awesome. And that was Certirex. And so I got okay. to sell the company, join Certirex as a co-founder, okay, and and go to work. 
And so I ran product and engineering there for six and a half years, like you mentioned. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting about that experience and how it continued to culminate in in our Allstacks experience was that one of the, the fundamental problems we solve with Allstacks is actually a problem of communication and expectation management. Mm. How do you explain to your stakeholders what you're doing, how you're going to be successful, how that's changing, right? We're building this product. This product is really important. We're, we're slipping in our deadlines. Like it's getting a little slow later and it's getting later faster, right? So not only are we slipping, but it's in, it's an unconfident slip. where where there's a lot of uncertainty around it. Mm -hmm. Well, if you communicate that really granularly, really consistently, the person on the other end who's receiving that information gets to make choices. They get to make decisions along the way rather than being surprised at the end. Hmm. And what to make that really work, you have to have trust, you have to have mutual understanding, and you really have to have data. And what I had at Certorex was I had trust, but I didn't necessarily have mutual understanding. I didn't necessarily have data. And the reason was backgrounds, right? I was an electrical engineer. Mm-hmm. Our founders were you know, pharma, immunologist type people, like mm-hmm. pure science backgrounds. And we didn't have a common language to talk about the, like, the nuances and intricacies of software development. Mm-hmm. And because we didn't have the data to talk about um, how these intricacies would manifest in outcomes, mm-hmm. we couldn't talk really talk about the outcomes either, right? Mm-hmm. So we were mm-hmm. just surprising each other all the time. Mm-hmm. And because it was healthcare instead of tech to tech, right? This whole situation was exacerbated. Mm-hmm. And so we we went through that for you know years and ran this company, and the company's still around, but. You know, mm-hmm. I was in my 20s and I said, six years in my 20s feels like my whole life. And, um, <laughs> right. And I said, okay, Most people in their 20s me, don't keep a job that long. <laughs> most people don't keep a job that long. So I said, okay, <laughs> let, me, let me just think about doing something else. Um, and that's when Jeremy and I, Jeremy was our first employee at Sergerex as well. He was our first employee at MedCount. Mm-hmm. I kind of got to bring him along through all this. Mm-hmm. And he, he and I said, you know, we really like working together. Um, okay. Let's go, let's go figure something out. We really liked data. We mm-hmm. liked APIs. We liked machine learning, mm-hmm. we liked analytics. Mm-hmm. And that's what our expertise was in. So we right. said, let's, let's go out. We started Ravioli Labs and just said, we're going to start another company. We know that. We're startup people. We have houses and partners and we want to pay our bills. Mm -hmm. And so what we'll do is we'll, we'll go and embed ourselves in development teams and just listen, we'll be flies on the wall and we'll find out what problems they're solving. Cause we kind of wanted to do an engineering related product. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and we'll see what their pains are. And once we figure out their pain, we'll we'll go build a product. Mm -hmm. And so we listened and listened and listened. And the the problem that we saw was the problem that I was just describing. It was the same problem in every single team, whether it was a five person company or a 50 person company or a 50,000 person company. And as we started interviewing people outside of the teams that we, we were embedded in, we just kept hearing the same thing. This is my, one of my biggest problems. It's really hard to solve. I don't know how to communicate what's going on inside of my org, outside my org. 
And so uh, mm-hmm. with that knowledge in hand, we set out and, and built Allsex and incorporated the company late 2017. Mm-hmm. We socialized this idea to the group at Techstars. They actually, the Techstars crew came into North Carolina where we're based and, and met a bunch of companies and mm-hmm. they met us. And, mm-hmm. um, we got an offer shortly after. And so Q1 of 2018, Jeremy and I moved down to Austin, Texas for four months. Right. Did the Techstars thing. We met our first employee who lives in, is Adam, who lives in Austin. Mm-hmm. We got our first million dollars of funding and here we are. Okay. So, so, uh, and, and Techstars is, is one of your investors. Um, mm-hmm. You've raised $8 million over three rounds. Uh, you are in your seed yep. round and um, you are, are going to look for your A round uh, in Q1. What has at least currently through your mm-hmm. seed round, through the first $8 million, what has investors excited about what you're doing? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so for one, it's a huge market. And so mm-hmm. just to give you a sense of that. So what does that mean? Huge market. Yeah. Like what's the market cap? Yeah. Our, our market is essentially equivalent to the number of software developers in the, in the oh, world. That's really interesting. And so okay. if you think about it that way, and you think about how mm-hmm. we price, we price essentially based on the size of the development organization mm-hmm. and you scale that out. There's currently 26 million software developers in the world. That's that expected to double <laughs> My God. in the next 10 years. 50, 50 million software developers. In the next 10 years? In the next 10 years. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you just do the base math, mm-hmm. um, our, our standard pricing, $400 per developer per year, multiplied by yeah. by 50 million developers, right. it's a massive market. Massive, right? So yeah. if you think about investors, like... Step one, it's got to be a big market. Yep. We got that. Um, step two, if you look at the investors that we, we work with, one thing that's really unique about most of them is that they've all been operators. Mm-hmm. And they were all operators relatively recently mm-hmm. to when uh, to, to becoming investors. And mm-hmm. if you think about that, every operator has felt the pain that we're solving. Because mm-hmm. they're sitting there, they're running these technology companies, they're centering the business around delivery of this. The sales guys are wondering, when can I sell the thing? Right. The customer success people are, how do I, how do I renew, placate, excite my customers to grow them? Mm-hmm. Marketing people are wondering, how do we talk about the things that are building? I got to do all this work to launch the, the product. And mm-hmm. when is the product actually going to show up? And with all this in hand... And you look at how developer salaries are increasing, the, mm-hmm. the cost of, of running a technology business is going up. And you're saying, I have to run my organization centered around the technology organization. And I don't understand the productivity or, of the organization, the capacity of the organization, the commitments and delivery of the organization. Mm-hmm. All I have is qualitative statements. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, in the boardroom, every other organization is quantified as data and is bringing right. that data to bear right. to support the predictability and reliability of the organization. That's so, interesting. so you can look at any board meeting in any company around the world mm-hmm. and the problem that we're solving is a problem that's present. How do engin- the engineers feel about this? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, 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 I mean, it, it almost, <laughs> and, and I'm probably being too dramatic here. 
occurs as Big Brother is watching. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, this is something we thought about really deeply before we started the company. And we made very intentional product choices to, to alleviate this. And it goes down to one very simple thing. You don't create an overarching universal scoring mechanism that reduces a human to a number. Right. Because if you create a singular number, that number is going to get gamed. Mm -hmm. Instead, what you do is you focus on two aspects and you take those two aspects and you look at them at the individual team and organization level. So the two aspects are internal consistency. Mm -hmm. How, how does a person, a team or an organization do over time? Mm-hmm. And is that a very consistent behavior, whatever the behavior is, that makes it predictable and reliable? Or is it an erratic behavior? So that's number one. And number two is you create the data in ways that they're naturally in, in contention with each other. So you optimize one at the expense of the other, mm-hmm. the other one goes down. So that what you really need to do is optimize them all together mm-hmm. so you're at this equilibrium. And if you successfully do that, guess what? You're a highly predictable, highly reliable, highly efficient team of people. And so this, this net tension actually creates the outcome that you want. So for example, hmm. what does that mean? Yeah. I want to deliver more features faster. Okay. And I want to reduce the, the cycle time of a ticket, okay. right, of, of a feature. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so if we take those two concepts, I could take all my features and cut them down into little tiny pieces. Mm-hmm. And so I deliver more of them. Mm-hmm. So you're like, wow, I spiked that metric, right? And then the cycle time goes way down because each feature is really small. Well, if you do that, what you've done is you've increased visibility into progress mm-hmm. and you've created a really predictable pattern that's, that allows you to understand at a really granular level how far you've gotten towards delivery because of how small you've chunked this up. Mm-hmm. And so what you've actually done is by trying to game it, you've created a more predictable outcome. Right. And so it, it net, nets out as a positive for the organization. Now there's limits to that, mm-hmm. but the limits become really evident as you inspect the data. So, so in, in, in selling this to, to, um, you know, head of engineering, CTO, whoever that might be, depending on the size of the company, right? Mm-hmm. Do they just purchase it? Do they go back to their engineering team and say, hey, we're, lo- we're looking to purchase this and to create yeah. an ex- th- that expectation of this is not Big Brother, this is going to actually improve how we, mm-hmm. do- how we work together. It's going to you know, yeah. give us visibility into where we're, yeah. where we're making yeah. mistakes, et cetera. Yeah. So that you're creating an expectation rather than all of a sudden, oh, shit, look what's going yeah. on now. And- Engineering orgs are are somewhat unique, I find, um, in how consistently they behave this way. Oh, in so that, this is not a command and control organization, right. right? Right. This is a servant leader organization, right? So, invariably, the way our product gets purchased, ninety nine percent of the time, is that the head of engineering or a director, or somebody in the engineering mm-hmm. leadership, they learn about the product. Uh, as they get excited about the product, what they do is they champion a committee 
to evaluate the product. And that's typically one or two of their reports and one or two of their reports, right? So you're looking at three levels in the org. And those folks, you're looking for buy-in from that that mini pyramid. Really smart, yeah. And if you don't get that, Mm-hmm. three levels of buy-in, you're yeah. not going to close the deal. No. That, that is very, very consistent. Mm-hmm. And the, what our product does is it services each of those levels differently to their work patterns and to their individualized outcomes uh-huh. so that the team leads get a place to live that actually makes their life better. The directors get a place to live that makes their life better. And the mm-hmm. VPs get a place to live that makes their life better. So there's something for everyone. Mm-hmm. And then our customer success team integrates with them really well mm-hmm. using tools like Slack and Microsoft Teams. Mm-hmm. We actually create direct connections. So we're right. in their right. Slack and they can just chat with us. And so what we often find with our customers is they think we actually work for the same company because we become a resource to them that they can access in the same way they access their coworkers. Oh, that's so interesting. And so now as an integrated part of the company, we're able to help them work towards that common goal of being mm-hmm. a predictable, reliable organization. Mm-hmm. And the, the, any sense of like big brotherness or any kind mm-hmm. of watching or kind of punitive activity, that, that disappears within the first few minutes of, of being engaged with them. I love that. If it existed at all. Yeah, right. So are, are there any places, Hirsch, where once this is installed and up and running, where... Um, there's some sort of failure in these levels anywhere and why would that be yeah what we find is if there's massive organizational disruption mm. which happens turnover you know, i mean that kind time, of thing just and change of control turnover, anything like that okay could be change of control yeah. could yeah. be a mna type mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. what okay. happens in that moment is well, let me put it this way. What we rarely get is someone saying, we don't want to use you. <laughs> what we sometimes will get is someone saying, like, we need to reset because we're going through this Got it, through this, yeah, through this drama. <laughs> but what happens in that moment is because we've become so trusted, yeah. is they often come back to us and say, can you, can you help co-create what our new organization should look like to be most effective? Because we wow. have this view of the world that most people don't have. Um, and it, and it's led us to do things like recently we published industry benchmarking data and it's mm-hmm. live data that mm-hmm. updates every single week as our, as our customer, uh, set grows. Mm-hmm. And it gives you today five key benchmarks that are agnostic to style and size of company right? that anybody can use to, to benchmark mm-hmm. their organization. Sure. So because we have that super set of data, we're able to help people in ways that, you know, they're otherwise limited. That's interesting. What's your sales cycle look like? So it depends on size of company. Right. But typical company, we're able to do a trial in like 20 days. And then, um, you know, and the reason we're able to do that is 15, 20 minutes to set up with us. Mm -hmm. 24 hours later, all the historical data has been processed Mm -hmm. and you have full access to the platform Everything's propagated. Mm-hmm. Everything's modeled. Every all the predictions are there at that point. Mm-hmm. So time to value is really quick, mm-hmm. and we can start. What what we do in our trials is we say, "What's a present problem that you have?" Mm-hmm. And we just show them. You know, it's teach them how to fish, right? And and we show them how to be successful right mm-hmm. off the bat. 
Do you have an average deal size? Yeah, well, it's bimodal. So we've got companies in the kind of 50 to 200 developer range. Okay. Those are, you know, those companies 20 to 60K. Okay. And then uh, we have the companies that are larger than that. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so we have a set of kind of low to mid six figure deals. And so we, we okay. see like kind of one or the other mm-hmm. um, when we land. But then what's really interesting is we don't need to work with the entirety of an organization to start. We work with a set of people. Right. And then we make those people really, really proficient. We mm-hmm. make them successful. When we move to the next organization inside the, the customer, mm-hmm. now it's really cool. They not only have us to rely on, but they have their peers to rely on as well. Mm-hmm. And the crosstalk becomes really powerful. Right. And so regardless of where we land, we usually see kind of two to five X expansion. Right. Well, the, the historic uh, land and expand model. Land and expand. Yeah, yeah. Very, very, very great. Do you have what you would refer to as an ideal client? Or is it just anybody, as you've described, that you know has yeah software engineering organization? There's there's a really interesting qualitative thing. I, I think a lot about the psychology of a customer. Mm-hmm. So one of the things I think is really important is like, do you actually care if your product gets out the door? <laughs> there are companies out there that you know they don't have that pressing need wow. to get the get the product out the door. Mm-hmm. They're kind of iterating. They might be in maintenance mm-hmm. mode. You know, there, there's, there could be some externalities there where that doesn't matter. So that's mm-hmm. really important from a psychology perspective. Do you have delivery responsibility? Mm-hmm. Do you care um, about that? So that really matters. The size of the company, like we talked about earlier, matters, mm-hmm. right? We don't want them to be too small just so the pain is, is more present and we can mm-hmm. make a bigger impact. Um, and then we tend to not go into the mega, mega enterprise, you know, mm-hmm. like a uh, 200,000 person company, at least not today a, mm-hmm. as a young kind of pre-series A company. Um, so what we find is kind of medium sized enterprises is, is our, is our max right now. So mm-hmm. well, most of our customers start at either 250 employees to okay. about 10,000 employees in that range. Okay. Plus or minus some on mm-hmm, the mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that would, that would make some sense. How do you how do you market? Are you doing inbound marketing, outbound marketing? How are you finding your prospects, or are they finding you, or both? Mm-hmm. Both. Um, and and what's really cool if you think about the evolution of a company, mm-hmm. we were very self driven, founder driven sales for the first mm-hmm. year. Mm-hmm. Um, common, year two, very common. We out, <laughs> very common, right? Uh, yeah. You do what you can with what you have. Not, yeah, not an epiphany for anybody year listening two, to this. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> year year two, uh, we we started doing a lot of outbound mm-hmm. SDR led sales mm-hmm. first mm-hmm. half of the year. Mm-hmm. Hired our head of marketing, head of sales, brought them mm-hmm. in, started mm-hmm. really amping amping up our content market. Right. Um, at the same time, the market was maturing. We started to notice that people were coming to us. Mm-hmm. The need for customer education on the market and the problem mm-hmm. started to dissipate. People knew why they needed a solution. They often had budgets, mandates to buy. And we really juiced the content marketing and and our pipeline shifted 0% inbound to 31% inbound inside of a quarter. Oh, interesting. And then the analyst community lit up and the analysts all started reaching out to us and and Mm -hmm. started talking about us, writing about us. And then the resellers started to reach out. Mm-hmm. And and drive deals towards us. Right. So what we're seeing is the the mix of outbound to inbound is shifting 
towards yeah. inbound significantly. That's awesome. And, you know, I'm hoping 22 will be, you know, majority inbound and, mm-hmm. and all indicators lead us to believe that will be true. Okay. That's really interesting. So I want to talk a little bit about You've got, you're about, I think you just said 31 employees as of this past Wednesday. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, In doing some research, this is not necessarily uncommon with startups, but I want to talk to you a little bit about why this happened. It it looked like you had about 40% turnover, a lot of movement and people that came and didn't stay very long and left. We've only had four or five people leave the company. Really? Huh. Yeah. I, I found research with a lot with about twelve people who who had you on their backgrounds that that it you know might did be, stay that um, contractors or advisors, okay. but at, Got as it. of like actual employees, we've only had four or five people leave the company. That's fantastic. Um, the nature of people, yep. yeah, na- nature of people leaving tends to be you know different people for different stages, mm-hmm. right? Um, okay. If you think about early days, you get a lot of generalists. Also, you get a lot of um, cash constraint, right? Yeah. And so you might get a more junior person, you might get, you know, somebody who like on the sales side, it's pretty interesting. What kind of sale are you going to have? Right. And, and in the early days, you might think you're more transactionally and of more strategic, or you think mm-hmm. you're more strategic and of more transactional. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so that kind of calibration really, really matters. Got it. Um, and so, you know, we had some turnover because of that. Okay. But outside of that, it's been pretty stable. Good. Have you have you had has any of your turnover been due to a poor cultural fit? Like you just brought somebody in and we're like, we, oh boy, we made a mistake we here. We have had only one person um, leave due to poor cultural fit, and okay. that was pretty early on in the company. Okay. Um, and what was interesting about it was it, it also kind of highlighted the strength of our culture because yeah. the person said like, "Hey, I don't think this this is the right culture for me," and self selected out rather than us having to take an action. Sure. That's really interesting. So how how do you describe your culture and what makes it unique? Yeah, so uh, I'll tell you about our cultural values, right? We've distilled them down to three value statements. Okay. Um, The first one is assume positive intent. I love it, This is extremely important, right? Mm -hmm. And there's two parts of this. Um, There's the upside and the downside. And Mm -hmm. we, we make sure to delineate the band of operation for each of these cultural values. Mm -hmm. So assume positive intent means let's take the most charitable view of what the person just told you. Right. Because when we do that, we we're able to then take that view and operate as if they're Mm well-intentioned and we can separate malice and ignorance. Yeah. Now what's really important though, is that ignorance shouldn't let lie. Right, we have to correct it. We, we as an organization, we as people have a have a responsibility to correct ignorance. So it's not like somebody says something that's ignorant. and We're like, oh, assume positive intent, just let them let them be. No, it's hey, let's assume that they were ignorant, and then let's work to correct that ignorance so right. we can have a better relationship right. moving forward. So that's that's cultural value number one. Cultural value number two is to be scrappy, right. and what that means is that. Let's do the most effective, efficient thing at all times. Yeah. Not let perfect be the enemy of good. Mm-hmm. But scrappy is not an excuse against hard, right? Being scrappy and being hard don't oppose. Everything we do is hard. It's a startup. All mm-hmm. things are hard. Of course. Right? 
And in fact, we're doing a startup because we gravitate to hard things. But the solutions to hard things don't need to be overly complex. Mm -hmm. They don't need to be overly expensive. They need to be appropriate for the nature of the problem and the value solving it would create. Mm -hmm. So that's being scrappy. Mm -hmm. And the third thing is we can always help. And what that means is that we as an organization of people a community that's working together to solve mm -hmm. problems mm -hmm. can solve problems for for our constituents, whether they're our customers, mm -hmm. our partners, or ourselves, each other, in ways that often don't have anything to do with our product. Right? The intent that we're trying to create yeah. is the value that we're providing, mm -hmm. and if we can accomplish that intent without selling them a piece of software, sometimes we have to do it. But the people we do that for, those people will remember us and stay with us for a long time. Mm -hmm. Now, the other side of that is we still set boundaries. Being helpful doesn't mean getting taken advantage of. Yeah. And sometimes the best way to be helpful is to say, we can't help you. That's right. And, and that's also an important part of this. Mm -hmm. And so those are our core values. I feel like our organization really embodies those. Yeah. One thing I hear often inside of the company is, the community feeling, right? Mm -hmm. When when people need help, people are there to help. People go out of their way to help. I had a conversation this morning with a employee that came from a larger company previously, and he said, mm -hmm. you know, I struggled at first because at his previous company, he, you know, he wasn't sure, like, who are you supposed to ask a question to in the larger <laughs> company? Yeah, right. Because in the larger company, everyone has these scopes of yeah, responsibilities sure. and they rigidly adhere to them. Yeah, right. And they... There's infrastructure. Almost an <laughs> right. there, there's almost an insult if you ask the wrong question to yeah. the wrong person. Yeah. So we're not like that here, right? Yeah, no, if right. you ask me a question, I'll either know the answer or I'll at least be able to point you to someone else. Right. And if I can't do either, I'll go and do some research and help try to figure this out with you. We'll co-create the solution. Mm -hmm. Right. And that that is really important. That's really special. And to mm -hmm. the extent that people are continuously willing to do that, mm -hmm. you're you're going to find success because yeah. that means that the outcome is more important than the individualized success. Mm -hmm. And if we maintain that collectively, mm -hmm. then we'll all be successful at the individual level as well because we're all fighting for each other. Right. You know, that's really interesting, Hirsch, because, because what in, in knowing and having interviewed and experienced so many startups over the years, you know, where I, where I would, assert what will happen is your company's going to get to a size where you're not going to just be able to do that anytime somebody wants to knock on your door. Right. You know, and, and how will, you know, and how will you start to, to deal with, I mean, there will be points where you'll have to probably put some processes into place. Right. But you know, those are two different things in my opinion, right. putting process into place doesn't mean being so rigid mm -hmm. that you excuse yourself right. from helping someone. I agree. Right. Yeah. And so what I see, there's a really great example locally, um, this company called bandwidth.com. Mm -hmm. They're a multi-billion dollar startup. They went IPO. They bootstrapped the whole, whole way. <laughs> What's fascinating, I was talking to a guy. He was telling me about his onboarding process mm. at Bandwidth. And the CEO is this incredible guy. He onboards every group of new employees. <laughs> there are hundreds it. of people now. Yeah. And he sits down and he introduces each employee to each other. Yeah. There's 10 people on boarding. He says, 
Mm-hmm. Oh, this is Carol. She's got a couple dogs and some yep. horses and a cat. Yep. Yep. She was on this on this ranch and um you know, she interviews people for a living and, and introduces introduces her to other people, mm-hmm. right? And and the fact that he he does that, it's because he made it a priority to do that. That's right. And so, you know, you spend time on the things you care about. Yep. And one of the things I care about is this kind of stuff. Yeah. And so to the, ex- to the extent that I'm willing to be authentic to myself, mm-hmm. I'll continue to do this. Yeah. If I, I stop continuing to do mm-hmm. this, that's probably an indication that it's time to sell the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's really fantastic because, you know, I, I had another CEO that I interviewed and he's pretty, follows the same logic. You know, he, he, you know, they acquire companies and he has got, he is hands on when that happens, man. He's hands on at working, you know, bringing their culture into his culture. You know, reaches mm-hmm. out when he has help, when he needs help with things like that. But it's, it's, this is where, and, and it's so great that you pointed this out because this is where large companies, and, you know, we could, we could fill in the blank with any number of names. IBM is a great example of that. People at the top don't have a clue what's going on down below, not a clue. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and I, I would be shocked if anybody at the high levels of IBM could disagree with me on that. I mean, if they do, mm-hmm. they're just living a delusional world, in a delusional world. And regardless of how big you get, I think that's a, it, it's a way that those people that, you know, by then could be three, four levels below you actually right. get to see who's, who's the CEO of this company and, and spend mm-hmm. a little bit of time with you. And right. I think it's, it's a brilliant way to create retention strategies to create cultural strategies and all sorts of, you know, things. I mean, culture is mm-hmm. important, you know, over half the people leave a job in the first 18 months for having reasons, for reasons having nothing to do with their skills and abilities. Exactly right. why your guy right. self-selected out, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that's, that's really important to me and, and I think what culture provides is that if we if we develop our culture properly mm-hmm. and we encourage our folks to be as successful as possible, we're training them to grow and flourish in their career. Sometimes that might not happen with us, mm-hmm. but if they adhere to our culture and we adhere to our culture in ways that, that are greater than just our individualized outcomes, mm-hmm. then what we're doing is we're also creating the next generation of successful people and successful leaders out in the world and people will come back and look fondly mm-hmm. on their time here and say, you know, that was time that was well spent. Mm-hmm. I, I remember I had a professor who, who had a company and he, he had built this company and, and they had met somewhat of a, a tragic end. They were going to get their next round of funding on nine 11 <laughs> and the whole thing yeah, broke apart exploded. in the mm. chaos, mm. in the chaos that ensued. And the moments after were, were really tragic and the decisions that they had to make and, and the things they had to do. And I was having lunch with my professor and one of his former employees walked by and it was one of the people that, you know, they had to make a hard decision mm-hmm. on, but they sat there, they stood there for a minute, recognized each other, looked at each other, you know, briefly reminisced about the time together and went silent. Hmm. And in that silence, whereas this just emotional well that came out where there were, there were literal tears forming in the eyes of these two people Mm -hmm. over the common connection that they had, because that was 
the best part of their working life was that moment when those, those years that they worked together. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself in that moment, I mean, this was 10 years ago. I'll never forget it. But I thought to myself in that moment that like, there's a level of success, even though it wasn't the, the same level of right. monetary success they thought they were going right. to get, but there was a level of success in the impact that they made on each other, person to person, human to human, community to community, that it's unmeasurable. Mm-hmm. And we can all, as as people, as part of this society, we can all just hope that we're able to make that level of impact on another human being. Mm-hmm. Because that's, you know, that's all there really is mm-hmm. at the end of the day. Right. Well, and, you know, and, and to circle back to your third cultural value, we can always help, right? Um, I, 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 you know, I'm a firm believer in give, 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 right? And, mm-hmm. and yes, there, there comes a point where you have to say, all right, enough. You know, this, I, I can't keep giving and that's okay. But... Mm-hmm. It's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a good deed to do it for right. all of us. One of the most important things that like my parents taught me mm-hmm. and children learn from their, mm-hmm. from their families mm-hmm. is that you know, gifts are given without expectation. That's right. They're not gifts. Exactly. I've, I can't tell you how many times I've said that to people. If you if you do something in order to receive something from someone else, that's what I refer to as manipulation. Right. You right. do it it's out of out of the mitzvah, out of the good deed, out of the goodness of your heart, mm-hmm. and ex- should expect nothing in return. And yeah. I, and I was, if you, I was fortunate to watch yeah. my dad and my mom do that their whole lives. Yeah. And sometimes at the expense of their own own material success. Mm-hmm. Right. But yeah. But there was there was plenty, right? And mm-hmm. and my parents immigrated to the country. They right. they came in, they started from scratch. Yep. You know, my dad started from scratch multiple times. Um and despite that, like would always go out of his way to help people, even mm-hmm. if it meant he got taken advantage of. Yep. But it still worked out. Right. And there was still plenty. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had that happen to myself over the years. It just, you know, there's no way around it. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes it works out in your favor. Sometimes it doesn't. But, you know, I'm, I am, you know, what drives me is, is the opportunity to make a difference. And, you know, I had a meeting with somebody yesterday um, who, who I'm, I'm relatively certain I'm not going to do business with. But, you know, I made a difference in that person's life. And I can, I can walk away from that and feel good about myself. You can't, you know, you can't spend 80 hours a week doing that, Mm -hmm. but you do need to spend some time every week doing that. I think it's super important because, you know, just leaving somebody better off than you found them. Right. Right. A, A great piece of advice that I got a few years ago was to sit down before you have wealth Mm-hmm. to whoever is in your your social circle, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's your partner or, mm-hmm. or whatever, whoever's going to partner with you, and decide what you care about. What are the causes that yeah. you would contribute to, that you would mm-hmm. participate in, that you're going to spend time on later because it's going to kind of guide how you behave mm-hmm. going forward. Mm-hmm. And so my wife and I sat down and thought about this, and one of the things we thought about was, 
how do we participate and invest in things that increase equity, yeah, increase access? And so for me, it was things like public libraries and community college, mm. um, things that are not not there because you have something. Mm-hmm. They're there because you don't need anything to access. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these are kind of great equalizers, right? Public schools in the, in the United States, these are great equalizers, right? Getting yeah. everyone to a baseline so that once they have that equity, they can then choose what they want to do with it. Right. And so what I find is really important for me, because I had people that did this for me and I, I try to do it for others, mm-hmm. is I want to help you get into the room. If I can help you get into the room, at least you have a shot. If you never get into the room, you never even get a chance to, to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things I, I try to spend time on, and I think it's important, is just increasing that equity, right? Increasing access. Let me, let me at least, yeah. it's how hard is it for me to make an introduction for someone I think is really capable? Not hard. Right? Get them into a room, get them from an investor, yep. get them from a customer. It's theirs to win or lose at that point. Mm-hmm. But at least we opened a door. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I mean, I, you know, I can't, I, I've done that countless times. I make the introduction. It's up to you two now. I'm out. I'm out. You know, this is something you guys should need mm-hmm. to know each other. Here's why. And I'm out because I can't, mm-hmm. you know, I don't need to shepherd that down. People are adults. They need to, you know, go, go through that then on their own. Um, how do you see yourself or where do you see yourself investing in resources over, you know, through into 2022, you know, you're at 30 employees, 31 employees mm-hmm. now, what's that going to look like by a year from now? Yeah. Yeah. So we're, we're going to be hiring in every department, mm-hmm. um, Good. growing in every department. The big focus thematically is on go to market resources. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. a lot of marketing spend. Mm-hmm. And then, so, you know, if we think about marketing from this is the door opener, right? This is mm-hmm. the top of the funnel. Yep. We're increasing the size of our, of our funnel then everything flows from there, right? So increase the size of the funnel. We need more salespeople to handle that, more uh, solution architects to help mm-hmm. shape that, more customer mm-hmm. success to support our customers, more product people to understand what the, what the what the customers need and want, and we should build for that, more engineers to build it, you know, so on and so forth. And so, yes, we're hiring in, in all departments, but right. it's starting with our marketing spend mm-hmm. and cascading down mm-hmm. from there. So if somebody, if somebody were listening to this, it says, wow, this is a really interesting company. I'd love to, love to, you know, investigate working for them. Uh, you know, they're hiring in all these different departments. What do they do? They can come to our website. They can shoot us a note, hit me up on LinkedIn. I'm the only person on the internet with my name. So if you can't <laughs> find me, you're not trying. Um, and, and off it goes. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. Um, how have you up to now been finding people? Networking? I mean, what's, what's been your process? Yeah, network referrals. And what have you found recruiters. has worked versus not worked? Um, I'm always really interested, worked. especially with startups, because they're so cash Yeah, everyth- everything's worked to find people. Okay. What I've found is really important is... Do you understand why you're hiring the person mm-hmm. and what you need them to accomplish? Mm-hmm. And then when you have to make hard decisions like, can I meet this person's salary requirements um, or title requirements or skills requirements mm-hmm. is not losing the thread of what am I trying to get this person to do? Right. What do I need out of this person? Mm-hmm. Because what I find, and, and this happens in, in every startup, right? Especially in the early days when you're really, really cash strapped 
it's you often find yourself hiring the you know the go-getter junior person which isn't necessarily a bad thing Right. right right unless that's not what you need that's right and what I find is you mm-hmm. have to be very eyes wide open on what do mm-hmm. I need versus what can I afford and what do I That's want. right. Um, and so what doesn't work is when those, those are mismatched. And you make the decision yeah. for reasons of, say, only money or only yeah. not wanting I'm glad that you know that you realize that you've, because... That, you know, that junior person, and, and I've had a lot of founders say, you know, you know, can we bring in somebody? I had somebody recently who said, you know, they've brought in a potpourri of different people. And then they kind of look back and think, I think we brought in maybe too many junior people because they mm-hmm. can't get us to point B right now. Right. right. So discovering right. what that looks like and, you know, mm-hmm. and bringing in that junior person, that means that means more training and more development to get that person to where you need them to be. So, yeah. you know, some of it may be, I mean, it is, it's a cash trap startup ain't easy. You've got to be able to sell a vision yep. for the yep. company and, and really, you know, listen to what's important. You know, once, once the candidate has sold you on buying them, for example, right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you now have to make a case for, you know, what do you really want and, and why should you want to come work for us? Yep. And, yep. and what I, I think, what I find also yeah. is, um, junior people that are really talented mm-hmm. are great yeah. because they're go-getters. They work That's hard. Right. They drive really hard. Yep. What they don't have is not fair. Like it, it, mm-hmm. it's not fair. It's just, it's just a fact of life is that like, mm-hmm. there are things you don't know. You don't know. That's right. And if you have a lot of people in that mm-hmm. same boat, mm-hmm. Like for, for for example, I'm a product and engineering leader. Yeah. Sales and marketing has come through these experiences, but that's not like I didn't go through mm-hmm. a classic training in sales and marketing. And so for me to hire a very junior salesperson and hope to coach them to success <laughs> is not a great <laughs> hope is not an effective it's, strategy. <laughs> right. It's it's, it's yeah. the blind leading the blind. That's right. right? Mm-hmm. Whereas I can hire a more junior product person because that's my, you know, that area, right. My area. Right. Right. And so it starts with self-awareness. Do you know yourself mm-hmm. really well? Mm-hmm. If you do, then you can make decisions on where do you go for the seniority? Where do you go for the junior? And, and then the other thing I would just say is that like seniority doesn't equal age. Yes. Right. There's junior people that are older. There's senior people that mm-hmm. are younger. Mm-hmm. It's about, it's goes back to those unknown unknowns. Mm-hmm. Are they able to navigate these obstacles mm-hmm. or not? Yeah. Uh, I, I'm gonna, uh, real quick then, how do you interview for that to discover that before we sign off? Yeah. I interview, especially in these roles, like right now we're, we're, we're hiring some senior folks. Right. Um, we leverage our community a lot yeah. to interview mm-hmm. them. Okay. So we have people on our board that are experts in right. sales and marketing or product. Mm-hmm. We've got, um, you know, people in our community that are product experts and we've got the people in the company themselves. And so nobody goes through just a single interview. Yeah. Um, we interview with me and Jeremy. We interview with the functional leader of the group mm-hmm. up here mm-hmm. and we interview on culture yeah. for someone who's a colleague, but not in the department. Right. Got it. And everybody goes through all of those interviews mm-hmm. and that's how we will it down. Mm-hmm. Well, that's really interesting. And, and I wish we had more time because I could, I could, I'd love to dive into that more, but 
Um, Hirsch Tapadia, co-founder and CEO of All Stacks. Like this has really been an interesting conversation and what you're building. And, and I appreciate you talking to me today. And I wish you the much success. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Authentically Successful. If you are a successful founder or CEO who would like to be on this program, please visit verticalelevation.com slash podcast slash apply. If you learned something from this interview and it made a difference, please share it on LinkedIn or Twitter. You can also do a quick screenshot with your phone and text it to a friend. And if you know of someone who would be a great guest, tag them on LinkedIn or Twitter to let them know about the show and include the hashtag authentically successful. I love seeing your posts and great suggestions. Lastly, we are regularly putting out new episodes and content. And to make sure you don't miss any episodes, please subscribe. Your thumbs up, ratings, and reviews go a long way to help promote the show and mean a lot to me and my team. If you want to know more, go to our website, verticalelevation.com, or follow me on LinkedIn. This is Carol Schultz. Thanks again for listening and see you next time.